Church, I invite you to open in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14 this morning. Luke chapter 14. We're going to read verses 1 through 24 this morning as we continue our sermon series entitled The Table, a study of the meals of Jesus in the book of Luke. Uh, Accompanying this uh, sermon series through the meals of Jesus in the book of Luke is a a book that we've made available just out on the Connect table out there. Uh, It's called A Meal with Jesus by Tim Chester. And I would encourage you, if you haven't already and you are interested in it in any way, to drop by the table and take a peek at this. Uh, One of the things that I noticed as um, he worked his way through Luke chapter 14 is how many stories that he had that were compelling and engaging that I think would help you to think through this text well and consider how it might apply during the course of your home and life and work and wherever it is that God would take you. This morning we're going to look at Luke chapter 14 verses 1 through 24. I hope you'll follow along with me as I read it this morning. Luke chapter 14. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor and saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once had gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he said to his servant, to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go and see to it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done. And still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Heavenly Father, we confess that we have much to learn 
we would do well to join the Pharisees and the lawyers in silence and let you speak. So Lord, I pray that you would quiet our objections, that you would quiet our our qualifications of this passage, that you would quiet our assumptions, our justifications, every one of us, and that we would see you for who you are, and that we would see where you are, what you are doing. We would be humbled that first, Lord, as we reflect on this passage together, we would be found in the end to be at the banquet table. This is our great hope. And as a people who have a seat at that table, subsequently we would become a people of great generosity, that we would become an inviting people, that we would become a humble people, that we would become a people who go to the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the privilege of a seat. Thank you for a privilege of going like a servant to make known that there are yet seats available. Thank you, Lord. We pray that you would work this by your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. There are really three parts of this passage, right? But it all takes place in one place. It all takes place at a a meal table. It takes place as they are dining at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. Now, I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open. And if you don't have your Bible open yet, find a Bible that's near you and open it up to Luke 14 with us as we look at these three sections. And the first section that we see beginning in verse 1 through 6 is we see a trap. You see a trap that's been laid. He was invited to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, and they were watching him carefully. Why were they watching him carefully. Well, this isn't a, a small party. It's a, it's a party of a ruler, a leader, and all of those whom he leads, right? A great religious leader, a person who knows much about the law and has demonstrated himself to be a bit of a master when it comes to the law and religious things. And he's invited his fellows to be among him and Jesus and a very sick man. It's reasonable at least to to think that the Pharisees knew the man with dropsy was there and that they were watching Jesus carefully to see what he would do here on this Sabbath banquet. As they gather on the Sabbath for this banquet and Jesus encounters the man with dropsy, what will he do? Well, dropsy is a disease where the body, especially the abdomen and the chest, are swollen and retains too much fluid. It's, it's a disastrous disease. Okay? And Jesus encounters this man and the Pharisees and the lawyers and the r- ruler who was among them are watching closely. Look at verse 3 with me. I love this. I love when Jesus responds when nobody really asked a question, right? And Jesus responded. The question is the circumstance. The question is the the situation that these Pharisees and those who are attending the banquet and the man with dropsy and a ruler are all concocted for Jesus. And Jesus responds to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not. You make the call. You can see why the Pharisees and the rulers could not answer. If they said yes, then they would have diffused the trap that they had tried to spring on Jesus. If it was okay to heal him and Jesus healed him, well, there we are. The end of the story. They couldn't do that. And they're thinking to themselves, how could you do the work of healing on the Sabbath in which you're not to do any work? They knew the law really, really well, didn't they? But if they said, no, no, you shouldn't heal this man, it is unlawful, then they would be perceived as heartless. They knew the trap that they had sprung on Jesus, and Jesus springs the trap by simply asking a question in response. 
truly wise. It's a, it's a wonderful way to go about a, a dialogue with a person who is asking questions. It's to simply turn the questions back and ask some yourself. Well, in this case, they happen to be quiet. They, were in, they weren't intending to answer the question themselves or step into their own trap. They were looking for Jesus to answer the question and so respond by slandering him. They looked to say, as they would say eventually, look how Jesus profanes the Sabbath. Right? It would seem that the Pharisees were the ones who were doing all the work on this day. They seemed to be quite mischievous on this Sabbath day to arrange this circumstance, and yet they're trying to trick Jesus. And it's tricky business trying to trick the Lord of creation in a trap. Here they are, and the trap springs, and it winds up being sprung on them. Jesus wouldn't have any of it. It's no question, it's no trap for Jesus. Why? Because it's no trap for Jesus to be presented with an opportunity to display grace and mercy which displays the glory of His character and the righteousness of the Father and the power of the Spirit. It is no trap at all. And Jesus does not fall into it, but rather runs right through it to heal the man. Look at verses 5 and 6. And He said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. They had no reply. Jesus had already made up his mind. He'd already made up his mind and gone about a healing work. It's the Lord himself who gave the parameters of the Scriptures, right? And the parameters of the Scriptures are difficult for the Pharisees to untangle because they are trying to leverage them for self-righteousness, which isn't something that the Scriptures were never intended to create in the hearts of mankind. But Jesus finds them easy to unravel. He considers the law of God and He remembers these two things. Love the Lord your God, right? which is what the Pharisees and the lawyers were claiming to be doing by their supposed obedience to the law, a careful obedience not to work on the Sabbath, not to to do the work of healing, or not to do the work of mercy upon this man with dropsy. Love the Lord your God. And the second is like it, right? Love your neighbors as yourself. And here they are to dine together. Here they are to enjoy a party together with the man with dropsy left suffering outside. Jesus says, if you have an ox caught in a ditch, help it. This isn't complicated. This isn't a tangle. This isn't a parsing of the law. If you have a neighbor in need of help, help him. Even if you'd like to hide behind your religious veneer and avoid touching the low and the broken, help him. Here's what Jesus does. He, dist- he, he goes about displaying that these people aren't righteous at all in their obedience to the law. In fact, they are quite unrighteous in that they didn't want to touch or deal with those whom they deemed low. Those that he would, they would have to go into the highways and the hedges to go and display mercy, as we'll see later on. In fact, the call of Jesus in this passage is not only to go and show mercy to those who may be in a position of need, to those who are low and broken, but rather, as we'll see, Jesus has two things. Jesus will tell us to see yourself as low, to see yourself as low and broken at the feast of the table of the Lord. Do you see how that completely alters the situation at the top of the passage? To see yourself as the one who is low and broken. And later that you would see yourself as the one who would invite the low and the broken to the feast to dwell among you. 
Now, what follows that Jesus has in the next two sections of the passage is a message to all who would hear about how to be a guest and how to be a host. All right, these are your only two options if there is a meal involved. Okay, so he's just going to cover everybody who is here, how to be a guest and how to be a host. It's an invitation, it's an invitation to the greater feast in the kingdom of heaven. The whole of the following meal is about heaven and hell. This isn't about how to eat McDonald's. All right? Although McDonald's very often is exactly the place where heaven and hell is at stake. Perhaps it's it's not a story about how to eat a meal in your house. But it is telling us that the way that we eat the meals in our house and the way that we barbecue on the weekend and the way that we open up our dorm room and we're wondering who will stop by is the place that reveals heaven and hell. Let us consider two more parables in light of how Jesus concludes his teaching at this meal. At the end of this meal, Jesus says in chapter 14, verse 24, he says this, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. That is the gravity, the weight that we ought to carry with us as we receive Jesus' teaching. Let us parse it well and let us receive it with faith. Verses 7 through 11 in this second section, really as Jesus launches into his teaching, unpacking why he goes about the things that he does at the beginning of the chapter, verses 7 through 11, he's speaking to the guest. Now, I love this. Verse 7, now he told a parable to those who were invited. When what? When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, it's then that he said to them, he noticed. I love this about Jesus. He's got good eyes. He he looks around and he sees things and he makes note of what he sees. In this particular case, he looks around and he sees the way they chose the places of of honor and launches into a parable. We see him continuously noticing from the hillside. We see Jesus. He sees all the people who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I wonder why no one before him saw that. He sees the rich young ruler whose wealth prohibits him from following after the Lord in faith. And he saw the man. He sees into the hearts of a series of disciples that are too enamored with the things of this world to actually follow after him. It turns out that they were would-be disciples, but couldn't follow after Jesus because they couldn't leave the things of this world. And Jesus sees into their hearts. He, He sees, he has good eyes, he lifts up his eyes, he uses them, and he notices. I wonder, as he lifts up his eyes and looks around the room, I wonder... Were they trying to sit closer and closer to the ruler of the synagogue? Well, obviously, because that would be the seat of honor, right? You have the ruler of the synagogue and a a series of Pharisees and lawyers who are in in this place, a ruler of, of the Pharisees, I'm sorry, and he's watching them jockey for position to be closer and closer to the ruler. Now, as I'm thinking of where Jesus is probably sitting in this gathering, he's probably somewhere at the foot of the table. He did, after all, just break the law and heal a man with dropsy. And as they're moving their way closer and closer to the ruler of the Pharisees, I wonder, did they realize that they were moving themselves further and further from the king of kings? Carry that with you when you consider the way that Jesus unpacks this Passage As we move ourselves higher and higher in the place of honor, perhaps we're moving ourselves further and further away from the Lord. Brothers, I find myself often making this call. Lift up your eyes and look. Brothers and sisters, what if we used our eyes? What if we saw what is taking place around us, no matter where we are? In fact, lift up your eyes and look at the Word. 
It's why every Sunday when we gather, I say, please grab your Bible or a Bible near you that we would lift up our eyes and actually look at the words that are there. That we would humble ourselves enough to believe that we don't know it yet. That there is yet something to be learned, something to be seen, and the Lord might work in our lives this morning. Lift up our eyes and look that just after the last song and we are sent out and we're told, go and be the church, that the first thing you would do is you would lift up your eyes and look around you. Now I know almost all of you do that. You know how I know you do that? Because I know I do it. I know the inclination of my heart is to lift up my eyes and look for a familiar face. Look for someone who might be friendly. For someone who might invite me to sit close to them at lunch today. But what if we lifted up our eyes and looked like Jesus looked? What if we scanned the room and looked for someone who's standing off to the side or trying to make a beeline out the door because they're not sure if there's even a seat anywhere at the table for them? What if we lifted up our eyes during a lunch break? I know it was a hard morning, and I know last night was late, and you just really want to find a quiet place, but what if you lifted up your eyes and looked and saw that there are many others with the same story? They could use encouragement today. They could use invitation. What if you lifted up your eyes and looked around your homes? What if you were in your yard and lifted up your eyes and saw your neighbor? Lift up your eyes in your classrooms and in the hallways. So very often, the reason why we don't lift up our eyes and look is because our eyes are dead set centered on our own hearts, our own insecurity, our own self-righteousness that we can't see what's really going on around us. But you look at Jesus. He's not insecure. He has glory secured. Jesus is not self-righteous in his performance alone. He is righteous because he is the Lord God in perfect fellowship with the Father. And from that position, he is able to go out and see and look. And here we are as a people having received the gospel who have that same hope that we have glory secured for us. And we have righteousness secured through the person and work of Jesus Christ, reconciled into perfect fellowship with the Father. What are we insecure about? And what are we striving for? We are free. We're free to lift up our eyes and actually look. And there's such wisdom in this passage. Proverbs 25, verses 6 through 7. It's a good proverb to write down in the margin of your Bible there. Proverbs 25, 6 through 7 says this, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of greatness, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Now, most of what follows in Jesus' teaching is just shrewd. It's just wise. It's almost like he read the Proverbs and knew a bit of wisdom himself, right? What's presented here is shrewdness, is wisdom in it. But it's more than feigned humility. It's it's more than just pretending like you're lower than you really are so that when they pass by, they will exalt you. It's a call to wait upon the Lord of the feast to put you in your place. Do you hear that? It's a call to humble yourself and wait upon the Lord of the feast to put you in your place and to assume that your place is at the feet, near his feet, at the foot of the table. No, in the end, it will be Jesus himself who puts together the seating chart. I wonder when Jesus is noticing, when he lifts up his eyes and he sees them jockeying for position, and he sees them moving around the table, he's like, nope, nope, that's not where I'm going to put you. No, nope, uh, a little to the left. 
right? He can see it. The Lord who will put together the seating chart in heaven was there. And he has something to say to them. He knows exactly where these men would seat. In fact, he has a warning that were they to continue in their pride, they would have no seat at all in the kingdom. Their seat would be outside. Because this is such a stern warning for us. Let us not say, oh yeah, those Pharisees. Yeah, that's right. Let us see ourselves in this passage. In what ways have we leveraged our religiosity to think that we have purchased a seat at the table that can only be received by grace? I see it to this day in nearly every social setting I'm in. There's almost always a group of people on the edges who are on the fringes, and there's almost always a group of people who are jockeying for position. And sometimes it's even the people who are on the edges who are jockeying to get out of the edges. The jockeying goes everywhere. This observation of Jesus is a call to go and sit next to them, to identify ourselves with those on the edges, with those in the fringes, to go with the blessing of Jesus and the joy of salvation. You hear that? We go with the blessing of Jesus and the joy that there is a seat for us. It's secure. We don't lose our seat by getting up out of our seat in this world and going to the low places. There is a seating chart. It is already made And our seat is secure if our seat is in Christ and not in ourselves, in our self-righteousness. We're to see our position as secure in the kingdom so that no matter what seat of table or authority or honor we have in this world, it's only temporary. It's only for a little while. There is a secure seat for me. The master is coming. He has a seating chart of his own. And the rulers of this world will be more than a little surprised by whom he honors. You see, in the time and the wisdom of the Master, the Lord will exalt a whole group of people who have humbled themselves in hope of a coming kingdom. We will be granted a seat at His table. And we will be astounded that we are there at all. It makes sense that we sing, how great thou art. It makes sense because our Heads will be bowed and we will say, what right do I have to be here apart from the grace of Christ? How great you are. It's a message to a people who are guests. But that's not all that Jesus has to say. He has some other words and they are words to the host. I was shocked by just how pointed, how straightforward it is. In verses 12 through 24, Jesus speaks specifically to the man who invited him. Verse 12, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. And he's like, oops, (laughs) already made up the guest list. They're all here and you just named them all, right? He caught He's caught, and he's about to get really caught in the middle of the parable. And here they set a trap for Jesus. It's hard to spring a trap on the Lord of creation. Jesus speaks to the host, and he notices who he is. He notices his heart, and he sees it by looking at his guest list. That's so important. I'm I'm not sure what your guest list looks like. I'm not sure what it is that you invite people to. I'm not sure where and how you play host. But everyone does in one way or another. And I wonder what Jesus would notice about us. What parables He would say if He saw my guest list and saw my heart. Jesus cautions, again, a shrewdness. He cautions against the use of meals as a means for climbing the social ladder. This morning's message is entitled Meals as Enacted Mission. What mission are you on in the arrangement and your use of meals? You know, I just, I just think of, of one of the places I've used meals. I've used 
meals, and something tells me this may resonate with some, to, to be really short little things that I, I work at my desk so my, my employer will see how hard I'm working. Is that an act in mission? Oh, yes, it is. I am on a mission to exalt myself in the workplace. What if I took the full hour that was allotted to me to labor for the sake of someone, to encourage someone, perhaps to read the Scripture with someone even, to go make that awkward ask, and hey, you know I'm a Christian, and I heard that you go to church or something, and would you be interested in reading the Bible sometime, perhaps tomorrow over lunch? Specifically, when Jesus cautions them about the use of their meals and the questions the mission that they are on, the invitation to a meal is not an invitation to become indebted, not to use a meal as an invitation to ingratiate others to yourself, but rather to use meals as an invitation to become related. That's the beauty of what we see Jesus do over and over again when he lifts up his eyes and he looks and he sees someone who is on the fringes. He brings them to himself and he enters into them. He often touches them. He enters into a conversation with them. He sends them out forgiven and reconciled so that they are his brother, his sister in the kingdom. Our invitations are not ways to indebt people to ourselves. It is a way in a hope and in a prayer that the Lord would make us relatives someday. Verse 14 tells us that they cannot repay, lest they invite you in return and you be repaid. Verse 14, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You see how this works? The, The... Ruler of the Pharisees was ingratiating himself by the invitation of the others who were rich and powerful and religious and knowledgeable in his presence, and he was elevating himself by the who gathered at his table. But what if you invited the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind? In what way would that advance his career? They would not be able to repay him. They would not be able to move him forward in his religious career they cannot repay so what is the payoff jesus is he doesn't pull any punches there's no side gig here he's honest when you invite the crippled and the poor and the lame he doesn't say it's going to be a rock and cool party you're going to have such a great time he doesn't say that there's this other way that they're going to be able to pay you because people will see how humble you are and how how charitable and how merciful you are, and then they're going to make you an even higher ruler among the Pharisees. Now he's honest. He says, nope, they won't be able to pay you. And there you are. Period. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The crippled, the lame, the blind, they will not be able to repay you. In fact, there may be no repayment in this world. Seems like a money pit. Seems like a poor investment. But then it's just like in Luke chapter 12, just a couple chapters earlier, it says, the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Well, in this case, the Lord will repay. He'll repay in the context of his kingdom at the resurrection of the just. Notice that Jesus' word is not humble yourself, for then you will be humble. The great goal of our humility is not that we would be humble. Instead, he appeals for our need for place. He he appeals to our need for investment and return. He doesn't say, give everything away, for then you shall be poor. Now go get them, folks. No, no, he he lays out something that is quite appealing, appealing to our appetites. Jesus is not afraid of our appetites. He is concerned that they are misshapen. And he's not concerned that we invest. He's concerned that we make poor investments, temporary investments. His call isn't to be humble so that you would be humble. His call is so that you would be humble 
with the promise that the Lord will reward on the day of the resurrection of the just. I love that quote from C.S. Lewis. Just paraphrasing a bit. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see, this ruler of the Pharisees thought he was really something. He thought he had obtained some great position, some great power, some great authority, some great respect. And Jesus says, that's nothing. Poor investment. There is an investment. There is a return that is to come. Verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, but wait, 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 wait. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is thinking, can't argue with Scripture. It's true. It's very true. How right he is. Revelation 19.9, the angel would tell John, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed. Yes. But how wrong he was. He was wrong in his assumption that wealth or power or heritage or race or influence is a sure ticket to the table. He is right that you are blessed to be and eat bread at the kingdom of God. He was wrong about who would be there and the means of securing that position. His assumption was that everyone who was religious and powerful at the table were essentially just pre-eating eating their way right into the kingdom. While in reality, they were excluding those who would be there. To play about in this world with the things of this world is to ignore the invitation to come and feast in the kingdom. He offers a parable. Verse 16. We're going to walk through the parable quickly. He said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. It's a context. A a great Lord, a great master of a, a great household is putting on a banquet. And he invites many. He offers the invitation in verse 17. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Come. It's ready. Come and, come and dine. Come and take part in the feast. Verse 18 comes they all alike began to make excuses. And they make three excuses. One says, I have a field, I have to go take a peek at it. Like you didn't look at it before you bought it, <laughs> right? It's an excuse. Well, I have five yoke of oxen, I'm going to have to go look at them. You didn't look at them before you bought the oxen, right? How much did you pay for those oxen? Was it a good deal? It's an excuse. I got married. Yeah, and you feasted. And you wouldn't have received an invitation if that feast wasn't over. It's an excuse. They're fake excuses, and what they reveal is the hearts of those who do not come. They are rejecting an invitation because they thought they really had something. Because what they're left with is they have a field, five yoke of oxen, and a marriage and no feast at the kingdom table. They had many things in this world, and no final receipt of an invitation to come. They're so worldly, they probably convinced themselves that they they needed those things. They probably convinced themselves that their excuses were legit excuses because they have the things of the world and they have to tend to their possessions and their relationships in this world. How often do we have such vain and pitiful and self-righteous excuses of not taking hold of what the Lord has provided for us? But they, we repeat them so often and we become so worldly in them that they become real. Like, I can't pray because I have this thing and this thing. I can't, 
I can't be in, involved in your church and submitted to your word and partaking of your word in the morning and in the evening because I have this worldly thing and this worldly thing. They're such vain excuses, but they become so convincing to our hearts the more we say them. Verse 21, so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Uh-oh. The master of the house became angry and said to the servant, he sends out some angry invites, all right, written quickly, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city. Bring in again, he says, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. The grace of the gospel is not only the provision, it is the invitation. It can be found in those who are in invited. The grace of the gospel, we can see it not only by, by looking at what the feast is that he's provided, what the grace is, what the glory that we have been invited to, but by also looking around and seeing that it's sinners who have been invited there. You see, the angels long to look into the glory of the gospel for two reasons. Because it's glorious, because it's gracious, because it's great, because it reveals the greatness of the character of our God, and also because he's, they're amazed. They're amazed at who it is that the Lord God has reconciled to himself. He has brought Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. He has brought all of these to be reconciled to God. I'm reminded of my wife's meals. She loves to prepare a meal table. How often does she set out a beautiful and abundant table? And she's sent out invites, and then she looks around. Literally, she'll do this. She'll look around at the table and say, wait a minute. We only have six coming, and there's eight chairs. And so she starts inviting. She's on the phone and she's thinking of everybody. She's like walking down the street with a dog and inviting people that she sees and going everywhere trying to fill up the table. In fact, one of the things that's become a, a, a catchword in our house is, is there room at the table? As long as there is room at the table, there is a responsibility to go with invitation. It's one of the th- reasons why we have four kids. Six people in our house, because at that time in our lives, we looked around our table, there were six seats. We had three kids, and we said, there's room at the table, let's have one more. (laughs) Thank goodness we took care of all of that there. We came here, and there's eight seats at the table. Maybe we'll fill those two someday. In the meantime, we look at the table, and we say, there's got to be somebody to invite. There's got to be somebody. There's got to be somebody in some highway hiding behind some hedge to be brought in. We who have access to the kingdom through faith in Jesus should also know the basic principle of the kingdom. This is so important. It's so important, especially in the letters of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. There is no joy in the feast until the table is full. There's no joy in the feast until the table is full. Yes, Blessed is everyone, but not until everyone has gone out and gotten the rest. That is, that is the work of the age that we're in. Are you looking forward to the kingdom of heaven? Not until the table's full. Do you want the joy of seeing the Lord? Do you want Him to return quickly? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Go and get the rest. The joy of the feast is not until the table is full. It's why Jesus came. He looked at the table that the Father had set. He saw that the Father had given to the Son a people. And He came and He got them. There's still room. Jesus is alluding to the Jews in Jerusalem. Even when the news goes out to a humble few of God's people, the Jews who make no excuses and do come in humility, there's still room at the table. And so it goes out beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. The word goes beyond a nation and a people and goes out to the highways and the hedges and the streets and the alleys. And there's a subtle announcement in this passage that the Jews too will come into the kingdom feast. Verse 24 is powerful. 
Verse 24 says, I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. I think that my isn't just referring to the host in the parable. I have a question before we wrap things up. Does Jesus want to put an end to a simple, quiet family meal with maybe just a couple friends? Are there no more relaxing Sunday afternoons after this passage? The answer is, yeah. There are no more relaxing, quiet meals after reading this passage. There are no more times, no more meals that simply belong to us, or else they will be all that we have. Every single meal belongs to the Lord. Every single meal deserves the question. The question, what exactly is happening here? Am I ingratiating myself? Do I deserve this meal I've worked hard today? Every single meal is to be taken in humility. Every single meal is to consider if someone else might have been invited. Now that sounds like anxiety, not freedom. And that's why the, the, the question is, is this something that I deserve? Something that I've observed in Sandy, she'd go crazy if she heard me saying this. Thankfully, she's in CP Kids this morning, so I can talk about her. But she often, people will say, Sandy, you work so hard, you deserve this. And she's thinking, I just have never read that in the Scriptures. It never says you just really deserve to treat yourself. It's very clear about what she and we deserve. Now, let me be clear. The, the grace is this. The Lord knows that we are to rest in Him. The Lord knows that it is sweet at times, to go home and gather our family close and say, let's rest in the Lord. Let's, let's pray together and thank Him for this meal and that we would be full and that we would be strong for what the Lord has for us this week. Is it the end of all family meals? No. Is it the end of ever dining with a friend? No. It is the end of ingratiating ourselves and assuming that that time belongs to us and not to the Lord. I love this illustration that John Piper gave at the end of preaching on this passage. He said this, on the back of your bulletin, there's a paragraph which says, if you would like to enjoy the blessing of having a Lao or Hmong family to join you for Thanksgiving dinner, please call the church office between 8 and 4.30 and evenings call Rick and Mary Wilson. I pray that we will all see the connection between this opportunity and Luke 14. Well, it's not Thanksgiving time, but it was just July 4th, and there's lots of cause for partying in the remaining days of summer. I think you will see the connection between this opportunity and Luke 14. I want to close with this. I, um, I've been watching a lot of the World Cup soccer, watching England work their way through the ranks, right? And uh, in the middle of World Cup soccer at the halftime break, there's a commercial that's on repeat. Perhaps you've seen it. It's an E-Trade commercial. And it says this, there they are, your neighbors. You like them. They always remember everyone's names. Your kids love swimming in their pool. You love them. They have a lot. You forget your trunks. They loan you some. They have a section in their stock portfolio just for pool stuff. Everyone likes them. You like them. But you'd like them better if you had more money than they do. Don't get mad at your well-loved neighbors. Get E-Trade. <laughs> and it works. Or else it wouldn't be on TV. It appeals to us our hearts to climb right up there with our neighbors at the top of the table. Work your way to the top. Jesus would say, don't get mad at your neighbors. That's right. Humble yourselves when you're in, your pre in their presence. Humble yourselves and invite those who are weak and poor to join you in your feast.
humble yourself when your neighbor hosts a pool party. And when you host a party, invite the poor, the weak, the lame, and the blind. Here's why. That's where Jesus is. Jesus is the one who has come and he has taken the lowest seat. He has taken the seat of sinners and then taken that seat and been hung on a cross, though he himself was without sin and died on that cross. If you want to be close to the Lord, you'll be close to a cross. And our only means of entrance into his kingdom is by grace through faith he would forgive our sin and that we would cling to him there. Let our neighbors, may our neighbors, may those who are far off from Christ see us at the feet of Christ and join us in our banquet there. Heavenly Father, I pray for our hearts this morning. I pray for the fact that something about that E-Trade commercial rings true in my heart. We confess that. I pray that we would get way more specific than that in our confession. Lord, I pray if anyone here does not know you, who is still striving, is still performing, is still outside of your banquet, has not yet responded to your invitation with faith, Lord, I pray that you would save, that you would soften their heart, they would confess their sin, and receive the grace of the host with faith. And Lord, for everyone here, we would do the same. We would receive the grace of the host with faith by walking in faith-filled obedience in this life. Faith-filled obedience and generosity. Thank you, Lord, for who you are, what you're doing in our midst, and that you are increasing our joy as we see the table of the Lord filling up. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.